And I was thinking about my opening statement, which is when you, whenever you take a meaningful step towards something, it requires taking a step away from something else. If you're going to step towards something, it's necessarily so that you would step away from something else. So I was just thinking because there, I've got several friends here this morning, and I saw a lot of you all out at the triathlon yesterday morning which, believe it or not, I participated in. And I thought to myself, Paul, if you want to step towards the triathlon next year, you should step away from the donut table today. That would be very helpful on your finishing time or just your overall health in general. Well, when you, you know this. If you're going to step towards something, if you're going to take a movement, a step forward to something, you're going to have to abandon or you're going to have to let go of something else. Every parent who has a child understands this. You're, you're trying to help your child to walk and you know as a parent, if this child is going to make it on their own, they're going to have to let go of the safety of your hand or the safety of the coffee table. Eventually, they're going to have to let go of something in order to move ahead. And so that's what we're thinking about this morning. We're in this series called The Next Step, and I'm trying to help you answer this question, what is God's next step for you? And without knowing exactly what your step is, I can promise you whatever that step is, it requires abandoning something else. Because whenever you're going to take a step towards something, it is going to require you to abandon or to let go of something else. And the examples are endless. Abraham chapter 12 of Genesis. He's called into a land that God would show him. And imagine the excitement of Abraham. He hears from the Lord and God says, Abraham, I'm, I'm calling you into this new land. And these are all the promises in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. Abraham I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. If you're just willing to take this step into this land that I'm going to show you, all of these promises are going to be happening. And Abraham must have just been completely overwhelmed with the promises of God. But that's Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. What might you imagine Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 saying? Abraham, if you're going to take this next step, if you're going to take a step into this land, into this new identity, then you're going to have to step away in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Abraham, the first thing God calls Abraham to do is to leave your country, to leave your people, and to leave your father's house. You see, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a completely new identity. But in order to, for me to give you a completely new identity, you're going to have to step out of your old one. And you can't take it with you. You can't stay here and go with me at the same time. A new nationality, a new ethnicity, a new family is going to be yours. And that's going to be required stepping away from your current one. Moses, he's in the tranquility of being a shepherd in Midian. He sees the burning bush and he's called into the turmoil 
of Egypt and to be a leader there. If Moses is going to take the next step, he's going to have to be willing to let go of the tranquility that he's been living with. Jesus in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he, he let go. He let go of his own glory in order to step into this world. And then he looks at his disciples and says, hey, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to take the next step, if anyone's willing to follow the king of the universe, then what must you do first? You must deny yourself. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to step towards him, if you're going to make a step with Him in some way, you're going to be stepping away from yourself. You're going to be stepping away from some person. You're going to be stepping away from some comfort. You're going to be stepping away from some tranquility. You're going to have to let go of something. And of course, this bled off into the early church. A young convert by the name of Perpetua, young girl, probably maybe not even 20 in 2003, or I'm sorry, in the year 20, I mean 203, sorry. The Roman government is rounding up Christians, and they're just herding them together. And when they herd them together, they say, look, you can live if you just recant. If you just say, I don't believe in Christ, we let you go. But if you're going to stay, we're going to put you in the arena. And either you're going to get killed by a wild, wild animal or a sword or something. So here's your chance. And here's this young nursing mother. And the fa her father comes with her infant and says, Please, Perpetua, look at your young son. For his sake, would you recant? And she looks through the bars and says, I can't, I can't do it. And so she walks out into arena, an arena. And the historian says, her breast still dripping with milk. And she's put to death, eventually beheaded. You say she understood, even as a young convert, if she really wanted to step towards Jesus, if she was really willing to step with Jesus, she was going to have to step away from even some of the most meaningful, valuable things in her life. There wasn't an option there. John Calvin in 1541 had been kicked out of Geneva and he spent three years in exile. And he said, those were the three of my happiest years. Because he's never really wanted to be in a pulpit, never really wanted to be in this particular place, sort of got drug into it. And he got in exile and was like, yes, finally. I'm in exile, I can study. And he spent three of his happiest years there and then in 1541, his church, along with a number, another, a number of other people, were pressuring him to come back to Geneva and to come back into the pulpit. And although John Calvin did return to Geneva, listen to his initial response to the request. I prefer a hundred deaths to that cross. You see, if he's going to step back in to a particular location that God was calling him to, he was going to have to deny himself. He was going to 
he was going to be required for him to step away. Hudson Taylor was a new kind of missionary in the 1800s. And he went to China. And one of the things that was so unique about Hudson Taylor is when he stepped into the Chinese culture, he started to dress like people in China versus dressing like a Westerner. And, of course, that was totally forbidden as a missionary at that point. So he was breaking this mold. And as he was breaking this mold and word got back, especially to young people, college students, they started feeling like, hey, I want to be a part of that. There was a certain kind of momentum, a certain kind of energy to go do things like Hudson Taylor did. And so Hudson Taylor was part of a movement that was called the Student Volunteer Movement. And you could volunteer as a student for two years of missionary service. And many young people stepped forward and said, I'd love to be a part of this two-year missionary service. Sign me up. And he and those who... Uh, he was helping help sign up people. They said, good, this is what you do. You go home, you pack all of your belongings that you're going to need for your two-year stint. You're going to pack them in your own coffin. And that's how we're going to ship them to your location. Because 80% of you are going to die before you return home. And you're going to be shipped back in a coffin. Let me see that hand who's ready to go now. I mean, 80%. I mean, I'm just 20. I'm just 22. I'm just getting started. I mean, you see, if you're really wanting to take a step forward, I don't know what small or large thing it may be for you. But I'm telling you, you're going to have to let go of something else. You're going to have to abandon something that you may think is valuable. It may be valuable. But in order to take the next step, you're going to have to let go. And So I want to look at this kind of abandonment that really comes from Mark chapter 10 this morning. Let's get oriented to what's happening. Jesus has been up in Caesarea Philippi. And you'll remember because I've said this many times. He takes his disciples on this uh, at little outing, little field trip. And Caesarea Philippi is known as the place for idol worship. And that's where he sort of stands on the stage. He looks at his disciples and he says, now, who do you think that I am? And, G and Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Right, Peter. You got that right. Now, and he, face, he puts his face towards Jerusalem. And he says, okay, we're taking one more journey, one final step towards Jerusalem. And when I get there, the son of man must be crucified. And so they're in this journey from the northern part of Israel down to Jerusalem, and they come to a town called Jericho. And Jericho is about 15 miles east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in the mountains, so Jericho is down about 3,000 feet, and you come into Jericho, and probably because they're coming in at Passover, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people are on this road that you can still walk today the 15 miles, 3,000 feet up in the air to Jerusalem. And you can imagine these Jewish pilgrims are coming, and they're singing out of the Psalms probably. The, remember the Psalms of Ascent? I lift my eyes up. I lift my eyes up, up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? They're all singing it. I'm not going to sing it for you today. You, can, you have a good tune in your head. But you can imagine the thousands or ten thousands, they're walking up into these mountains. They're going to come to Jerusalem. And they're lifting up their eyes saying, where is my help coming from? And they're on this journey 
up to Jerusalem. Now, this is a group of the disciples, Jesus, thousands of other pilgrims. And at the same time, another journey is happening. A much shorter journey. A blind beggar who lives in Jericho. Probably lives in an alleyway near the city gate. And he wakes up that morning. And he's going on his own little journey. And he's going to go outside the city gate. And the only thing that he owns is this cloak. It's the one thing that gives him protection. And when he goes and sits beside the road, he spreads his cloak out, hoping that the pilgrims who go by will hand him food or hand him money or hand him something that's valuable. And so you can imagine this blind beggar in the alleyway. He gets up, he's got his cloak, and he's just trying to shake the dew and the very sour smell it must have had. And he takes his stick and he taps along the road and he sits in his usual spot and he's, he's anxious for today because he thinks, hey, this is going to be a good day. Lots of people coming out the city gate. And he spreads his sour cloak out and he begins the begging process. And his journey and this journey with Jesus has an intersecting point. Three things that you see here in this particular passage. Bartimaeus has an urgency. He has an understanding of himself and of Jesus. And finally, the point that I'm really trying to get us towards is he has a willingness to abandon himself to the Savior. If you look at verse 47, you can see that Bartimaeus apparently had heard about Jesus. Verse 47, and when he, Bartimaeus, heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, he cried out. So he's not surprising. This is the end of the three-year ministry. Jesus had been in this area before. Perhaps the blind man had heard, hey, the guy who, who heals blind people, he's coming by. He might be in this crowd. So he begins to, to cry out. He has this sense of, emer- of urgency. He knows now is the time. Here, here comes Jesus. He's, I, I can't see him. I, just, I know the, the pavement is full of feet. And maybe in this crowd coming by right now, Jesus is walking by me right now, so I'm going to cry out to anybody who can hear me. Jesus, if you're in this crowd anywhere, if you could please have mercy on me, he's he's not going to lose his chance. And so he stands or he sits at the crowd surrounded by this sour cloak, but he knows the King of Kings is passing before him and he's just hoping that his cry somehow might reach his ears. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. I mean, you never know. You never know when your last chance might be for Jesus to pass by. Bartimaeus doesn't know if Jesus is going to pass this way again, so he's not going to lose his chance. And there might be some here thinking, well, I, I'm going to have more chances. I've got some stuff that I want to get done. I, this may not be the day for me, but you don't know. God's calling 
you to a particular step. Maybe it's a particular step to have a relationship with Him. A particular step into something. And this is the day. He's passing by right now. And I don't want you to lose it. Because you don't know if you have another day. You don't know if He's going to pass by this way one more time. Or maybe never. I remember one June I was sitting at a camp with this high school student. And we're talking about the Lord and just sitting by the pool. It was just a kind of regular conversation. I honestly didn't think too much of it other than this is sort of what I do. The next June, I was sitting in a hospital room while they unplugged him from life support. See, you don't know. The King of Kings today is passing by. And I don't know what you need to cry out for, but today's the day. Several years ago, while we were meeting over at the activity center, I knelt down and uh, talked to a little boy who had done some drawing in Sunday school, so I tried to have a little conversation about it. That was on Sunday. Friday, I knelt down by his bed in a hospital, and he had died. I was there with his parents. So you don't know. Bart, Bartimaeus, he doesn't know. He didn't know if he's going to get his chance. But this is the chance. He's, he's feeling like I'm ready to take this step. And Jesus is passing by. And he's not going to lose his chance. And in what must be one of the most frustrating moments here in verse 48. And really disturbing. The people who can see, what do they do? The people who are surrounded Surrounding Jesus, what do they do with Bartimaeus? Verse 48. They rebuke him. Telling him to be quiet. You're, you're just a piece of human debris. We've passed all, all your kinds on the side of the road. You're nobody. You're not valuable. He doesn't have time for you. He set his face in a direction. He's not stopping for people who've done what you've done. He's not stopping for people who look like you. He knows all about you and he's walking right by. Maybe somebody who could see walked up to Bartimaeus and said, Ah, too late. Oh, you missed him. Or, or oh, you're crying out for Jesus. He's not real. He's not here. Some of you have heard that voice. You, you just don't measure up. You're not good enough. He's not interested in you. You're kind of just a piece of debris along life's highway. Or maybe he's not even real. And I love Bartimaeus' response. What did Bartimaeus do? I'm just crying out all the more. Hey, you think the first time was loud? What about this one? He doesn't give up. He knows this is his chance. He's not going to let somebody come into his life. He's not going to let a parent come into his life. He's not going to let a friend come into his life. He's not going to let a professor come into his life and try to sway him and say, all that stuff's not real. He's going to say, yes it is. I'm miserable. I need the King of Kings to come by right now. And I'm not going to let someone dissuade me from taking that step. And what we can learn from Blind Bartimaeus in that. And then we see a great moment. Jesus stops. 
just love, I just want to sit in that moment for a, just a second. Everyone, thousands of people walking forward. Nobody really paying attention to any particular conversation except for the one they're in. And then suddenly Jesus stops. And you can imagine the disciples, the pilgrims just, oh, oh, they're starting to back up on each other. Maybe angels in heaven are following. Whoa, whoa, hold on. God stopped. We got to stop. Oh, yeah, everybody come to a stop. Quit bumping into me. And everybody's looking down at Jesus saying, what's caught his attention? And what is it that's caught his attention? He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And what does he stop for? This, this little squeaky voice. Someone crying out for mercy. I mean, I would want to know what is Jesus thinking about right then? On his way to the cross and, and somebody says, would you have mercy? Bartimaeus' cry reveals a couple of things. One, he understands that Jesus is the king. He's the son of David. He's the true king. He's the one everybody has been looking to. Isaiah eleven ten says, In that day the root of Jesse, which is another way of saying the son of David, in that day he will stand as a signal or a banner or a flag for all people. Of him the nation shall inquire and his resting place shall be glorious see see one day jesus is going to stand like a banner he's going to stand like a signal and when he comes to that particular stand when he makes his stand then all the nations will be able to find rest and it shall be glorious and when does jesus make that stand when is that banner unfurled that all of humanity can stand underneath this banner? It's at the cross. God unfurls His love for the world on the cross. And anybody who wants to step into that, anybody, no matter what you look like, no matter what society may see, you can come and stand underneath that mercy. Bartimaeus understands something about himself. One of the definitions for mercy, you know, that's what he's crying out for. Have mercy. And one of the definitions that I thought was very helpful is mercy is the aspect of God's love that causes him to help the miserable. Mercy is the aspect of God's love that causes him to help the miserable. So what does Bartimaeus understand about himself? <laughs> he's miserable. I am in misery in this life. I've had it with this life. I keep trying to make these things work and I, they just don't work. I am miserable. If there's a God up there, can you help a miserable person like me? Is what he's crying out for. And then finally we see this abandonment. Imagine this excitement in verse 49. Jesus stops and says, hey, call him. 
Now, I don't know if Jesus was close enough to not say it himself, but somehow the word got back, and these same people who were just a few moments ago were saying, be quiet, whoa, hey, reversal of fortune, he's calling you, take heart, get up, let's go. And I think what's fascinating, and why Mark reported this, I'm not quite sure, but why does he record this little detail in verse 50? Bartimaeus does come to Jesus, but why record this tiny little detail? He throws off his cloak. Well, that would have been an extreme gesture for a blind person. I mean, that's his only sense of protection. That's the one thing he actually owns. It's, it's a way of providing. He spreads it out and it's a source of income for him. But before he ever gets to Jesus, he says, hey, i got to throw something off. And he throws it away. Maybe to say, you know, I'm not going to allow anything that I'm holding on to hinder me from getting to Jesus. Maybe, hey, I'm not coming back here. I don't need to take this with me because I'm not coming back. But he understands that stepping towards Jesus requires stepping away from something else. Now, as I stopped at that point and I thought, what do I think about that? What what might other people think about that? And it's possible that when you read this story, you say, well, that's wonderful for Bartimaeus. And I'm certainly happy for him. But I don't think it was that hard for him. I mean, do you? I mean, he just doesn't own that much. I mean, he's getting rid of one sour cloak. So I'm glad he did throw it away. And that's a wonderful application. But I don't think it was that difficult. It's certainly less difficult for him than it is for me. Because, like, I have a lot of stuff. It's possible that you could think that way that i could think that way and if you think that way i want to introduce you to somebody else that you might think a lot more like and he happens to be oddly enough in this same chapter chapter 10 verse 17 and he was setting out on his journey this is jesus and a man a man who could see ran up and knelt before Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said to him, Teacher, I've done all these things since my youth. And Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, Okay, well, you just lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. And disheartened, he went away saying, sorrowful because he had great possessions. You see, the contrast just couldn't be more sobering. The rich young ruler who can see comes to Jesus on his own asking what he can do to be saved. The the young man is blind. He's blind 
to thinking that there's something that he can do, there's, there's something he can contribute, there's something because of his standing, but there's something because he really is a law keeper. He's done a lot of good things. People would think well of him. Maybe he thinks because he's young, whatever it is, he thinks he can make a contribution. But I believe the rich young ruler comes feeling like he's missing something. But he's not miserable. And there's a big difference. So you can come to Jesus just saying, I'm just kind of missing something. I've got all this stuff and it's just not quite doing it. And if I could just get one more item to bring into this circle of stuff, then I'd be complete. But you see, he's not miserable. When you're miserable, you say, I don't want any of this stuff anymore. I've got to have the one thing that can do it. And I wonder if maybe you came to Jesus like the rich young ruler. You walked into a nice church. You sort of have everything figured out. And you're just sort of missing something in your life. And you've come here just trying to get Jesus on your crowded plate. But you're not really ready or willing to abandon your life, you just want to add Jesus to your life. That's not what he does. It's terrifying to me that Jesus doesn't go after the rich young ruler. I mean, here's a man who's almost at the edge. I mean, he's there, almost there. And if I were his disciples, I'd say, Jesus, well, go, keep going. Go, keep, just after, after him. He's almost in the door. And he's not. He's not very near the door at all. He's not miserable. And what does the rich young ruler do? He takes his very sour cloak back. He wraps it around himself. The cloak that reeks with your own righteousness and your own possessions. And he sits back on the highway thinking he's got it all together. The one who is miserable came and found fulfillment. The one who is nearly fulfilled came to Jesus and found that he was miserable. You see, if you want to take the next step, whatever it may be for you, you're going to have to let go of something. It might be a possession that really possesses you could be something good like a relationship could be your health your life but whatever it is that God is calling you to do it's going to require stepping away from something else let's pray together Lord every heart here because of your Holy Spirit can hear you speak into their lives right now and identify what it is they're required to step away from. Comfort, glory, self-righteousness, wealth, safety, their own life, a relationship. The king of the universe has passed by right in this room. 
And this is the time. This is the day. Oh, I please pray and plead on their behalf that they would not walk out with the cloak that they walked in with. And they sit in their car and they sit on life's highway this week wrapped in the possession that they're possessed by. Help us see individually. Help us see as a church. What, what is the next step? But also, what is it we need to step away from? Lord, we live in a city, in a world full of blind Bartimaeuses. We ourselves were just like him. And so as we come together in worship, we also come together and give as part of our worship. And Lord, I pray that you just take this money in a way that would be more than we could ask or imagine and multiply it for the purposes of helping those who are blind see the Savior. In that name I pray, amen. Thank you.